We were going to start a series uh, through the book of First Peter. Um, I kind of ended up starting that series last week on Easter because as I'd been studying it, I just couldn't get away from uh, verses 3 and 4 there that we looked at. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so in some ways, we kind of started this series last week. Uh, today, we're going to go back. And we're just going to pick up verses 1 and 2. So uh, I want to spend some time in prayer for some specific things here uh, towards the end of the this, of this sermon. Um, so I'm going to try to not uh, take up too much time this morning. It is just two verses. However, I can be long-winded. So we'll just trust that the Lord will do all that he wants to do today. But let's read verses 1 and 2 in 1 Peter chapter 1. His introduction, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray one more time. Father, in the time that we have together, please open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, have you guys ever been out and about somewhere, anywhere, the store, the mall, the post office? Um, maybe not the post office because the post office is kind of small uh, and this would be unavoidable. But have you ever seen somebody that you know or that you haven't talked to in a while and you see them and you, you like the person and you want to say hi to the person, but you know that there's no such thing as just saying a quick hello to that person. Yes, anybody? And so you haven't went and said hi to that person because you know that if you say hi, you're still going to be standing there talking 30 to 45 minutes later. Anybody? Yes? Okay, I'm not the only one. Uh-huh. Not the only one that's done it. How many of you are that person that can't say hello? Okay, all right. That might be the other, <laughs> the other side of that. And Jesus loves us all, amen? Um, but uh, I just, I was thinking about that this past weekend, and Peter, I wonder if Peter was one of those people. I wonder if Peter was one of those people that um, just, you couldn't just say a quick, a quick hi. I mean, as you read throughout the Gospels, this is the Apostle Peter, you know, just a little background of the book. He, he was, you know, kind of the, the, the mouthpiece or the representative, the one that usually ends up talking for the group of disciples. And many times, you know, they call Peter the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth because he kept sticking his foot in his mouth. Uh, at one point, he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him and you know, Jesus calls him Satan, which, you know, isn't good. It's, it's kind of a bad day. Another time, him and James and John are up on the mountain during the transfiguration, and Jesus is revealed in all of his glory. And it says that Peter, uh, in typical Peter-type fashion, he, he's like, I know what this awesome holy moment needs right now. I just need to say some words. And so he just begins, he just begins to talk, but it says that he doesn't really know what he was, what he was saying. Uh, and, and, and then here in, in, this, in this letter, what's interesting about it is like, Peter, he, he's just saying hello. He's just saying hello. This is a letter that he's writing to several churches throughout an area that covers about 300,000 square miles back in the day in Asia Minor. And so um, in, in the, the areas are listed there, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And Peter was kind of an overseer of these, of these regions. Um, and he's just saying hello, yet he's saying a lot more than Hello. 
there is a ton of theological depth and information in these, in these first two verses. And uh, the three kind of questions, again, even though he's just saying hello, he's really setting the table uh, for the rest of the letter um, that we're going to be eating from, uh, Lord willing, over the next several months probably through the summer and, and into the fall. But there's three primary questions uh, that he's going to address and answer here for us that, again, are going to kind of pave the way for us understanding the rest of the letter. And those three things are who we are, how we became who we are, and why we were made who we are. Okay? Who we are, how we became who we are, and why we were made who we are. Okay? And so that's what Peter uh, has for us here in his greeting and what we're going to look at together this morning. First of all, who we are. Peter has a very specific identity that he wants for the people of God back then and for us today to embrace. Now, throughout the Bible, we're, we're told many things about our identity, probably at the most like, core level, at the very foundation of who we are, God has made us his children, okay? He has made us his children, and that is, and that is glorious. Uh, for those of you that are parents, uh, there's just no relationship like that with your kids. It's just, uh, I love all you guys, but I, I just, I love my kids in a different way, and I'm sure that that's true of you too with your, with your children. And throughout the Bible, we're told that we're not just children, but that we're salt, that we're light, that we're his body, that we're his hands, that we're his feet, that we're his bride. And we talked about those things a couple months ago. But the identity, who we are, the identity that Peter wants to get across to us here in this letter, and he's going to hit on this again throughout the letter, is this, is that we are exiles. That we are exiles. Strangers. We're sojourners. We're wanderers. Some of your translations may even use that word there uh, in verse 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he says, in these, in these areas. And we enjoy being children of God. And, I, and I, man, we, we embrace that. We love that. We should enjoy being his bride, his body, his hands, his feet, salt, light in the world, and all the other things that the Bible says that we are, um, the temple, dwelling place for God. So many things it says about our identity. But right along with all those things, guys, we have to embrace being exiles, okay? That this world, this world is not our home. And throughout history, whenever God's people... Um, have tried to make themselves at home in this world and have not embraced this part of their identity, we have stopped having what I would call kind of a prophetic voice to the world around us. See, have you ever been, um, I don't know, again, in the city or something, and you, you, you see a group of people maybe over, and they're, and they're all looking in a certain direction, and you don't know what's over there, but you see them looking and because you see them looking, you maybe go over and you, you know, look over the bridge too, or you look at whatever it is that they're looking at. See, that, that's the effect that we're supposed to have on the world when we embrace our identity as exiles. Is like, yes, we're here, and we're not withdrawn from the world. In fact, we're called to pour out our lives in love, in service to the world, but our eyes are fixed on another world, a world that is to come that God 
that God has prepared for us. And when we do not embrace this part of our identity, we're somehow not going to fulfill all of the calling and purpose that God has for us. And this is what we're going to, again, we're going to come back to this over and over and over again as we go, as we, as we go through, this, through this letter. It's, it's, it's kind of like this, too. Let me give you another, <laughs> another example. Is that I have, again, our, our identity should be in Christ, first and foremost. But we also have earthly identities, okay? Um, a few of mine um, are that I'm a husband and that I'm a father, okay? And I'm also a pastor. Now, I can't live primarily out of those things, okay? Because if I try to embrace those as my, as my primary identities without first embracing my identity in Christ, just as his child, uh, I'm going to end up being a mess because I'm not a perfect husband, I'm not a perfect father, and I'm definitely not a perfect pastor, but yet, those are some earthly identities that I have. Now, think with, with me about this. Like, what happens if I don't embrace those identities that God has for me? Okay? Or if I just embrace one and not the other? So like, what if I embrace my, my earthly identity as a husband, but not as a father? Right? These kids are coming up to me. Dad, feed me. Dad, go outside and play basketball with me. Dad, I need new shoes. Dad, I need new clothes. Like, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Huh? Right? Like that's not, like if I don't embrace my identity as a father, it's going to hinder me from fulfilling the responsibilities that I have because of that identity that I've been given. Are you following me? And, and, and here's just the point, guys, is that like part of Christian maturity, hear me. Again, this is all over the Bible and I'm, I'm saying this, but it's not the primary identity that Peter is going to expound on. Is that yes, we are children, we are loved. We are cared for. We are his body. He, he does stuff through us. But we are also exiles. And part of becoming mature is not, and this is what happens sometimes as we learn about our different identities in Christ and what Christ has done for us, is, is we become a little bit schizophrenic. And it's like one day we're a child, and then another day we're his body, and then another day we're exiles. And that, that's not what I'm talking about. Part of Christian maturity is being able to hold what you would call a duality. Like, like you, we, we embrace all these things. We embrace all these identities of who he's made us to be. And at the same time that, yes, we are children of God. Yes, we are his body. Yes, we're to be salt and light in the world. Yes, we are his disciples. Yes, we're his hands and feet. But we're also, at the same time, exiles. And if we don't embrace that identity... Um, it's going to uh, hinder us from carrying out the mission and the purposes that God has for us here. So our identity helps us to fulfill our responsibility, and it also helps us to understand our reality. Our identity speaks to our responsibility, but also to our reality. If you, um, you just want to flip the page over, and we'll get to this eventually, but like, for example, in chapter 4, verse 12, again, Peter's going to run this whole thing of exile through the whole letter. But chapter 4, verse 12, he, say, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. <coughs> now, do you hear me? Like, like here's what's, here's what's like, like, when hard things hit, I don't know about you, but th this is what I do. The first thing, I'm like, God, what's happening? Lord, what did I do? Where did I mess up? Are you, are you punishing me? 
Why would you allow this to come into my life? But if I understand that part of my identity here in this world until Jesus comes back or takes me home to glory is that I'm an exile, stuff hits me and I go, he said this was part of the deal. And guys, he did say this was part of the deal, right? Can I get an amen? He said, if, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Whoever wants to follow me, let him take up his cross. Deny himself and come, and come follow me. This is what, this is what it requires. And, and I, you know, we prayed this morning in the prayer room in the back, just like, this is what I'm, I'm praying and trusting that as we talk about it, because that's really in ourselves, that's all we can do is just talk about it. And, but we, as we trust and cry out to God for the power of his Holy Spirit and um, just the power of his word, his living word, I, I just pray that he's going to do something in us over the next several months in our time together in this book where he gets this identity down into us. In the same way that I know that many of you have wrestled over the years, and, and I think every Christian wrestles to some degree or another, to get down into them their identity as God's children. And no matter what, man, he's going to be your father. He cares for you. He loves you. He's going to watch over you and protect you. But sometimes we, we struggle through that and to, to get that identity into us. In the same way, I want us to get this identity as exiles down into our hearts, uh, ultimately for his, for his honor and his glory. Let's keep going. So that's who we are, but how did we become who we are? Okay, well, here's the answer, and it's right here in the text. Through the election, foreknowledge, and sanctification of God. Through the election, foreknowledge, and sanctification of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus Galatia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, of all mornings to say that I was just going to go short this morning, uh, this is a tough text to do that in. There is a lot here, and again, Peter's doing a lot more than just saying hello. Uh, there are as deep as you can possibly get theological ideas and implications of words that he is using here. Uh, let me try to explain them um, as thoroughly and yet as briefly as I can for, for the sake of time, and we'll talk about these more in the weeks to come because Peter brings this up as well. The word chosen is used many times, and this idea of election is used many times throughout, throughout the book. Elect just simply means to choose. It means that God God chose you. Um, that's what it, what it means, nothing fancy. The second one that you see there, the foreknowledge of God. This one is, is much more hotly, hotly debated, okay? And so there's basically two camps that this falls into whenever you begin to talk about the foreknowledge of God. And I want to point out here that he says they're elect exiles, and then he kind of has the interrupter there with all the different regions that he's writing to, and then it says, but the election is according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, the two camps that, and this is a, this is a Christian debate, this is an in-house debate, um, so I don't think you're not a Christian if you don't you know, believe the way I believe on this. However, here's the two camps that it falls into, is that usually people would say that uh, foreknowledge, well, yeah, God elects, but it's according to foreknowledge, and they read into that that it's foreknowledge of those who choose him. So God chooses those who choose him, and he foresees who chooses them, and so he chooses them because they chose him. Are you following me? Okay. Yes, and, and immediately when you begin to go down this road, you're like, you know, don't know what all's going on, and it is definitely the deep end of the, of the theological pool, okay? Now, um, I don't think that's, you know, um, 
terribly wrong. I don't uh, fully agree with that because nowhere does it ever say that God foreknows those who choose him. It's just foreknowledge. And so as you do a little bit of work on this, on this word throughout the scriptures, uh, it's not just the idea of knowing something. See, whenever we talk about knowledge, we always talk about just facts, like we, we, we know math, we know the combination to get in the lock outside in here, like we have just this information, and that's obviously included in it. But when the Bible talks about foreknowledge, it's, it, or, or the, and just the word knowledge or knowing, it's not just knowing information, it's a relational knowledge. And again, I've used this over and over again with you, the, the Greek word is gnosko, but it's the idea of not just that I know what two plus two is, but that I know my wife. It's a relational, experiential knowledge. And when the Bible says that God foreknows us, it's this idea that he was intimately acquainted with us before we ever existed. Let me give you a few, just a few scriptures to point this, to point this out. Um, in Amos chapter three, verse two, he says of Israel, he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God literally knew nobody else that was on the face of the earth? No, it means that he was intimately acquainted with them out of all the families on the earth. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah's call in Jeremiah chapter one, the prophet Jeremiah, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, what's he say? He's not just saying, like, I just, I knew that you were going to exist. No, I was intimately acquainted with you. Um, right here in the, later on in this chapter in 1 Peter, Peter uses the word foreknown again. In fact, this exact um, kind of tense of the word foreknown is only found here in verse, uh, uh, in, the, in verse 2, but then also here in uh, chapter 1, verse 20. And he says this about Jesus, that Jesus was foreknown. It says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. And speaking about Jesus, God didn't just know. He didn't just know that Jesus was going to do this, although obviously that's part of it. He was intimately acquainted with Jesus before the foundation of the world. And, um, and then he sent him. He made him manifest in the last, in the last days. And so you've got election, foreknowledge, let me finish it up and I'll try to tie it all together, of God the Father, and in sanctification, in sanctification of the Spirit, that the Spirit is given to convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment, and that even this morning, this is what I'm trusting every single week, that as I'm preaching that the Spirit of God is doing a work in people's hearts to draw them uh, to himself, and even for us as Christians, to work in our hearts again through the proclamation of the word to draw us to him. The Spirit sanctifies. The word sanctified just simply means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be made holy. Um, the Spirit is the one that practically comes and does that work. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, uh, I love what uh, Paul says here. He says, for we know brothers loved by God. And let me, let me stop for a second, give a little background. Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks. He preached there on three Sabbath days, three weeks, and then he got run, he got run out of town. Most uh, Thessalonica doesn't usually get a good rap um, because he goes on the next town that he goes to, and you can read this in the book of Acts, is uh, the city of Berea. 
And it says that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians uh, because they examined the scriptures to see whether or not what Paul was saying was true. However, there were a few people in Thessalonica uh, that did get saved. And here's what Paul says to them. Now, he writes this letter back to them after just a, he's run out of town after being there for just a few weeks. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? He gives the answer. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, like that's how it came everywhere, it always came in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so he's saying here that, like, he's like writing back to these people, and again, this is always when we begin to talk about election, foreknowledge, sanctification, God's work before the beginning of time on our behalf and choosing us, bringing us to himself. Almost always it's written to Christians to encourage their hearts to let them know that before you were ever thinking about God, that God was thinking about you. Does that make sense? And if you know Jesus this morning, listen, this is good news. Is it deep theological stuff and do our, does it kind of make our minds explode? Because like, well, I know I had to make a choice for Jesus. Yes, absolutely. We say, choose Jesus, follow Jesus, repent of your sin. Believe in the gospel. That's what, that's what Jesus did. But in all of our choosing of him, he also, chooses us. he also chooses us. Okay? And it's good news, and it's to be a comfort to your soul. Let me quote two people. Again, when you come to stuff like this, I like to uh, stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, and two of them, uh, Charles Spurgeon and also J.I. Packer. Let me read some lengthy quotes, and just, just listen here. Spurgeon said this. He said, <coughs> that... The fact that God predestines, and yet that man is also responsible, are two facts that few see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory to each other. But if then I find, taught in one part of the Bible, that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true also. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can never contradict each other. I do not believe that they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil, but they certainly will be one in eternity. They are two lines, I love this, they are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them the farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God from where all truth does spring. J.I. Packer Again, in, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, uh, says something similar. He says this. He says, What is true is that all Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do and insist that they reject it. He says, What causes this state of affairs? The root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church. The intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men, and a consequent subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. People see that the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over those actions. These are not content to let the two tr- and they are not content to let the two truths live side by side as they do in the Scriptures but jump to the conclusion 
that in order to uphold the biblical truth of human responsibility, they are bound to reject the equally biblical and equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great number of texts that teach it. The desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out the mysteries is natural to our perverse minds. And it is not surprising that even good people should fall victim to it. And he goes on to talk about how prayer is an evidence that we all believe that God is sovereign and that he saves people. He goes on and he says, how then do you pray? Do you thank God for your conversion? Do you pray for the conversion of others? If the answer is no, I can only say that I do not think you are yet born again. But if the answer is yes, well, that proves that whatever side you may have taken in debates on this question in the past, in your heart, you believe in the sovereignty of God no less firmly than anyone else. On our feet, we have made arguments. We, on our feet, we may have made arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all agreed. Still with me? I know that was a lengthy quote. But here's his point, is that we all know that God's the one that really does the work of salvation, right? Because if you've ever prayed for God to save somebody, you're giving evidence to the fact that you believe that it all lies with him. And man, we share the gospel, and we preach the gospel like it all relies on us, but if you've ever shared the gospel and realized you can't change anybody's heart and mind, it'll turn you back to praying like it all depends on God, because it does. But the means that he's chosen to use, guys, is us opening our mouths and sharing this good news, that there is salvation in no other name, in heaven or on earth, other than the name of Jesus Christ. And it's only by putting your faith and trust in him that you can be saved. And one other thing here, before we move on from this election foreknowledge, sanctification, and again, there's so much more, okay, I admit I'm totally skimming the surface here, but there's so much more that could be said, but this is important, is because in America, this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and does God choose us or do we choose God, and again, I, both are true. But in America, the only place you usually talk about this is in theological debates. Or, uh, and I, oh man, I got a headache and then just wanted to never talk about it again this past weekend watching a bunch of YouTube videos <laughs> of people that, no, oh, this is right, no, this side is right, no, 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 this person's picking apart this person's sermon, this person's picking apart this person's sermon, saying how, saying how they're wrong. But what I'd like to point out is, is that when Peter talks about election, foreknowledge, and the sanctification of the Spirit. He's not writing it for some theological debate or to roast somebody on YouTube. He's writing it to a group of people that are literally being tied to poles and lit on fire to light Nero's gardens at night. He's writing it to people who are being clothed in dead animal skins and thrown into the midst of the Colosseum so they can be torn apart by lions. He's writing it to people that are in the midst of unbelievable, unspeakable suffering that we do not have a grid for. And his point is this, if you can imagine shepherding those people. He goes, guys, don't think for a second that God doesn't see you right now and that he doesn't care for you because he cared for you and he was thinking about you before you even existed. He knew you and he chose you. How much more is he thinking about you now? Does that make sense? So he wants this to be a comfort to their souls. And guys, I want it to be a comfort to your soul this morning. That no matter what you're going through, 
no matter what trial or tribulation or suffering you may endure, don't think for a second that God doesn't see it. Because he saw you and he formed you before you were even in your mother's womb. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And if that blows your mind, it should. <laughs> Don't be surprised. Because that is the love of God. That's the God that we serve. Make sense? Kind of, sort of? Okay, just nod in agreement. We'll go on. Who we are, how we became who we are. But then also, why we were made who we are. Why were we made to come to Jesus to be exiles? Again, not the only identity, but an identity that Peter wants to get across to us here. Why were we made who we are? Here's why. To glorify Jesus by obeying his commands. That's why. That's why he did all this. For the praise of his glorious grace. He goes on, all this was done in the sanctification of the Spirit. Listen, for obedience to Jesus Christ and, to sprink, and for sprinkling with his blood. And I'll unpack that sprinkling with his blood in just a second. But here's, here's the purpose statement, okay? So who are we? We're exiles. How did we become exiles? God did this work in us. He saved us and drew us to himself. Why were we made exiles? Because we are to obey Jesus, glorify Jesus by obeying his command. It says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. So guys, we are saved to obey Jesus. I was talking with the, uh, somebody earlier this morning. And the Great Commission, and we, we state the Great Commission all the time, but we always jump over this one part and we don't apply it rightly to our hearts. That Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. <clears throat> Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. He does not say, and teach them all that I've commanded you. But teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. There's a massive difference between just receiving teaching and receiving teaching that you need to obey. And we are so confused on this in this culture because we, we've, so many of us have grown up with so much legalism. And so anytime anybody even begins to talk about obedience or obeying Jesus, we're like, oh, that sounds like legalism. We don't know our way to God. You guys, like, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you know, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Even your good works are filthy rags to God, okay? It is only by the blood of Jesus that you are saved. But Jesus saves us to send us in obedience to his word. Part of that obedience is that we go and that we share the gospel. But another part of the obedience, and, and guys, this is really, this is what Peter's going to unpack throughout the rest of the letter. What does it look like to obey when you're in the midst of intense suffering? What does it look like to obey as a church and in a church culture? And you got people that you don't really like and people that their personalities kind of rub you the, the, the wrong way. What does it look like, look like to obey Jesus when you're in a small group with somebody that kind of chafes you a little bit? Okay? What does it, he's going to go on. What does it look like to obey Jesus under ungodly human authorities? Like Nero, like the emperors, like Herod, like Pilate. What does it look like to obey? What does it look like to be obedient, to glorify God through our obedience as husbands and as wives? 
What does it look like to obey with our spiritual gifts the way we've been made? What does it look like to obey, chapter 5, um, as those in leadership? What does it look like to obey with those who are under leadership, earthly leadership within the church? This is what he's going to unpack is that Jesus Christ came to purchase for himself a redeemed people that are his bride, his body, his children, his family, and yes, elect exiles, just like he was on this earth because he has another home for us. And the reason he's saved us is so that we would ultimately glorify Jesus by being obedient to him. And guys, this is at the heart of what God has always been looking for and of what he promised throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, very quickly, this is the new covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah, also Jeremiah 31, also Ezekiel chapter 36. It's picked up in Corinthians. Also the writer of Hebrews quotes these passages that this is now not just for Israel, but that this is the reality for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, Jeremiah 31 He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel chapter 36 says something very similar. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and listen, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. That if you have a desire to follow Jesus, that desire was put there by God as part of the new covenant, believing in Jesus. When that happened, he gives you a new heart. Now, listen, do we still have that old flesh? Do we still have those old desires? Yes, and it's going to be there until Jesus comes back and totally eradicates it. But now you have a power to walk in victory to the commands of Jesus because Jesus lives inside you. The only one who ever lived a perfect life. He lives inside you. Now, none of us chooses to believe and follow him perfectly every moment of every day, but guys, this is why there's no excuse for our sin, for you or for me or for anybody else. Because yes, we were once slaves to sin, and there's a time still when we still at times, we feel enslaved even as Christians, but what we have to do is come back again and again and again and preach the gospel to ourselves, that it is no longer us who lives, but it is Christ who lives in us. In this life we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God. That Jesus, what is Christianity? It is this, Jesus living his life in you. That's what it is. I mean, this is so great a salvation that he would give us a new heart. And again, this idea of obedience is pressed home here with this picture that, that Peter puts in the text. He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And you're like, what is going on there? <coughs> Very specific picture. In the Old Testament, priests would at times sprinkle things in the temple and make them holy. But there's a very specific picture in Exodus chapter 24. God delivers the people out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai where his presence has come down and it's shaking and quaking and it's crazy. And all the people are kind of freaked out. And he makes this covenant with them. And here's what happens, is that Moses, he takes, and this is Exodus chapter 24, uh, I'll just start in verse 7. It says, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant, again, these ten commandments that, he'd, that God had given him back in chapter 20, and he read it in the hearing of all the people. 
And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, they weren't going to be, okay? Then verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. That's what Peter is alluding to here when he says a sprinkling with their blood. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Now listen, here's the deal, is that Moses goes back up the mountain then to meet with God again. Before he even comes back down, the people have totally broken this covenant. They're dancing around the golden calf and doing all that. And so like before the ink is even dried on the contract, they have completely broken it immediately. But what Peter's saying here, what he's alluding to is like, don't, guys, don't forget that God saved you and he's called you as his children, but also as his exiles, so that you would live in obedience. And you're able to live in obedience as you're dependent on him in this world until he comes back. Because, again, in the Exodus, just their bodies were sprinkled with blood. But what's been sprinkled with blood now under the new covenant? Our hearts. Because if you know Jesus as your Savior, you may not always feel like it, but we don't, the Bible doesn't say that the victorious live by feelings, we live by faith. And the faith is in the fact that God has sprinkled your heart and he's made you clean. And his spirit now lives within you and he wants to cause you to walk in his command, commandments. This is, what, this is what he has for us. And so we are exiles and we're exiles because of the work that he's done in our hearts. And that is, should be a comfort to us. Um, but the reason that he's made us exiles and saved us is so that we would glorify Jesus by obeying him. And the reason it glorifies him when we obey him is, guys, when we follow the commands of God, there is what he ends up with here at the end of verse 2. There is grace and there is peace. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace, unmerited favor. Guys, as we seek to obey Jesus, okay, and listen, Christian obedience always starts with trust first. Before it's ever a do thing, it's a trust thing. If you ever try to obey without first trusting him, okay, over and over and over again, every day, resting in him, you're never going to obey properly. But when we trust in him and obey him, there's always going to be grace and peace. Unmerited favor and peace is the idea of total tranquility. That no matter what the storm you're going through, that you can have peace in the midst of the storm. Just like Jesus was, fell asleep in the boat during the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee in the Gospels, and the disciples are freaking out. Why? Because he had the peace of God. He is the peace. He is the peace of God. Worship team, you come up, and we'll begin to close. Just a couple of application questions, okay, as we close. Then I want to spend time in prayer for just two things. So we wrap up. Number one is, here's the question, where is your home? I don't mean like me, you know, 2771 County Road 168, just a half mile down the road from the stink plant, praise God. Um, boy, it was fresh the other day, whew, boy, I tell you what. Anyway, that's all I'm talking about. I mean, wh wh where's, where's your home? Is your home here on earth or is it in heaven? E2 courses meet tonight. I don't know if you guys got a chance for those, those of you that doing, uh, are doing the E2 course, but um, some of the accountability questions that we have to ask each other. One of my favorite ones is this, when we get together in our little cohorts, our little groups, is question number two is, what, what, what has your heart been most fixated on this past week? See, that's what I'm saying. When I say, where is your home? Like, like what, what has your heart been most attached to? 
And if it hasn't been Jesus, then that's called idolatry. And for the sake of God's glory and your own joy, he invites you to repent of having your heart fixated on something here on this earth and to get it back on him because we're exiles here. Secondly, are you believing today, right now, this morning, that God loves you and that he is intimately acquainted with every detail about your life? So, yeah, that's how I became a Christian. I, I believe that. No, are you believing it right now? Right now. Do you believe that? That he sees you, that he loves you, and that he's intimately acquainted with every detail of your life. And not just that he knows, and he's like, yeah, whatever. They got a lot of stress going on. But that he's right over top of you. That he's above, below, behind, and before. That he's all around, that he cares for you. You see, if you don't, believe that first. Again, I said obedience always starts with trust for the Christian, always. If you don't believe that, then you're not going to obey him. And this is why every day, guys, we have to come back and preach the good news to our own hearts. And if you're not believing that this morning, even if you're a Christian, if you've come in here this morning and you haven't been believing that, then listen, the good news of the gospel is right now, right now. You don't got to wait till we sing, till we take you right now. Say, Jesus, I want to believe. I believe that. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love that that prayer's in the Bible. <laughs> Guys, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Guys, believe it. Because it's true. And lastly, I would ask, is obedience to Jesus Christ a priority for you? Because it needs to be. That he's saved us, guys, to send us and to live amongst the world in such a way that the world is watching us, watching something else. That we're looking, that our eyes are fixed on him, our treasure, our glory, our joy, our prize, and that as ever, the world is watching us, watching something else, that they're gonna come over by us, and they're gonna be like, what are you all watching? And then they look at Jesus too. And hopefully they fall in love with Jesus as we have. Um, make obedience a priority, grace and peace is there. Hey, I, I want to close this morning doing, doing two things. Um, we will do communion then and sing, and I don't know if that was short or not. I'm sorry. I said I'd try to keep it short. I probably didn't, but, but there, there's two people I want to pray for, and I, and I really believe, and hear me here, um, what I'm saying, but I really believe this is kind of a, uh, it may not seem like a big deal, but I just, in the way that God, again, foreordains things and works even when we don't know that he's working. But there's two people specifically that I want to pray for this morning uh, that, I want to say ironically, but it's not irony when you know Jesus, um, but providentially enough, I, they're kind of living as exiles, which is just what we talked about this morning. And, and one is um, little Nevaeh. I don't know, Ashley, you want to come up? Well, you guys remember Ashley had fostered little girl Nevaeh uh, for, I forget how long it was, Ashley. How long did you have a year, and, a year and four months, and Nevaeh went back to live with a family member, um, and Ashley obviously can't share everything, but just share briefly just about how we could be praying for her, and then we'll pray for her. Yeah, I wish I could share more details, but I just am not able to, but I basically haven't had contact with her since February, I think, and there have just been some concerns that we had before she was placed with a family member that are kind of being founded at this point, and Right now, it feels like it's entirely in the court's hands. But everything in me wants to go up to that house and get that little girl and bring her back home because she's yeah. not doing okay right now. 
And so if you guys could just pray with me that God would just protect her and protect her heart. And I totally am trusting that I told her, I don't know how many times that Jesus is with you, no matter where you are, whether you're here or, or there. And I am trusting that she is feeling that and knowing that, but I would love if you guys would pray with me on that. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys know Ashley or New Nevada, I want you guys to come up real quick. We're just going to gather around Ashley and just pray for her. Just come on up. Just real quick. Lord, you, I, know, I know that you that you love that little girl. Um, and Lord, I, uh, our hearts are, Lord, it's because it's we're exiles. That we're, we're simultaneously, even right now in this moment, Lord, 